Kings. We're not finished, not quite finished, but we're getting there. So all along, you know that when we were doing First and Second Kings, we would also check with Chronicles and see if there was any detail. In this latter part, from time to time, we went to the book of Jeremiah. because Jeremiah put a lot of information, especially about the fall of Jerusalem. Well, tonight is another one of those situations. We're only going to cover about four or five verses in 2 Kings, but we're going to spend some time in Jeremiah chapter 40 and Jeremiah chapter 41. Um, as we're taking a look at this, these are some of the after effects of the fall. So where we are contextually is Jerusalem has fallen. It has been burned up. It has been broken down. The people have been carried into exile, or at least step number one. And then the poorest were left in Jerusalem. But in the meantime, uh, Nebu Zaradan, the captain of the, the army, took the bronze pillars and took the bronze sea and took the ten stands, all of bronze. And I'm going to show some pictures tonight. We have those pictures. They are available. Unfortunately, those who are watching on live streaming will not be able to see them. Well, we're working on that. We're working on getting that on live streaming. But anyway, uh, I wanted to take a look at those. And then we're going to move into we're going to move into this last section, which is said in detail from Jeremiah. And it is going to center around Jeremiah. We're going to go look at his ministry from his book. And the governor, Gedaliah. And that's what it talks about in 2 Kings. Gedaliah, chapter 25, verses 22 through 25. But before we begin, let's just bow in a word of prayer. Father, we are thankful for your faithfulness. And the faithfulness that you help us to have when we serve you and live for you. Tonight, in the midst of talking about the fall of Jerusalem and the aftermath, still you can see, we can see your hand involved, your faithful hand. And even that faithfulness we're going to be able to see in Jeremiah and we're going to see also in Gedaliah. We pray, Father, that we would be faithful in our service to you and our ministry to others. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So... What I'd like to do is just go back and see what we missed last week. The first thing that we talked about was the pillars. You remember those very huge pillars? They were made of bronze. Well, here's a picture of them, at least an artist's rendition of them. I think it's right. I think it's close to how high they were. You can see how tall they were compared to those priests that are standing on the steps. And this is both of them. So this was... Um, the two particular, Boaz and then Jachin. So that's, that's what we have there. Now, again, this is an artist's rendition of it, and there's the various pieces. You have the bottom part. Then you have the whole pillar. And then on the pillar, you have that wreath of chain work. And then on top of that, you have the lily work. This is all... Uh, bronze that has been formed uh, in a very artistic way. And last week we talked about the meaning of it. We talked about the uh, 
the analogy of those things. But let's just take a look, a little closer look. So here we go. And you can see there the lily work. Uh, that's one person's rendition of what the lilies were. Lilies are very, very artful, um, as you know, and there's many, many different types of lilies. Uh, lilies are very hard to represent because they curve. Many of them will curve. Um, but here they're shown in, they come to a point. As we get a little closer, uh, there's the pillars. Uh, here's a picture of one. Uh, this is a, a replica that you can go into and you can move around and take a look at it. But there's the, uh, the pillar post. Let's just zoom in. And that is supposedly the chain work. Now, that might lack a little bit compared to what the description is, but at least the crisscross is a possibility. You can even see the lily work on the very top, and then you can see those round things on the bottom, which are pomegranates. And each of those have symbolism uh, in reference to the Lord and in reference to the temple. Uh, again, a little close-up of the lily work there. Uh, then the the nets of checkered work, wreath of chain work, and pomegranate. So there, there it is again. And there's a pomegranate. Uh, I chuckle because a lot of times I, if we're studying something and it has to do with a little treat or a little food, sometimes I'll bring it in, you know, to be a, a full teacher, you have all the senses involved, but I didn't bring any pomegranate. So, yeah, because you can get those at the store. <laughs> Uh, when we were going through the book of Esther, though, we did do, we did do some of the, uh, the cookies that they make nowadays uh, when they celebrate uh, the feast there. And when, when uh, indeed, this is the time they go over the book of Esther. So anyway, um, the next thing that we'll want to look at is the Bronze Sea. The Bronze Sea was that huge vat made of bronze and of course, water was contained in it. And then the water was taken out and put into smaller vats that were on wheels. And this was done for ceremonial worship and the worship of even their sacrifices. But this is the, if the pillars didn't surprise you, the, the sea, the bronze sea will. There it is at the bottom right hand. That is the See, that is this construction, and we talked about its dimensions, and they were incredible. So there you could see, again, the artist puts the idea of the priest standing there, and you could just see how huge it is, let alone the oxen. And all of these things talk of service, uh, talk of cleansing, uh, talk of even the little Levitical priest's uh, service, but, but there is certainly... Um, number one, the analogy to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our high priest. And then secondly, to believers, we are a body of priests, as it says in Hebrews. Uh, there's another picture in, that, in that, uh, that website that you can go around. Another picture. And then, which is still impressive, but not as massively impressive, is the bronze stands or the labors. Now, again, we're showing this because Nebuzaradan, the captain, said, hey, we're taking anything valuable back to Babylon. And, of course, these were because they were made of bronze. But it says that the, to weigh it, 
It was impossible because it was so heavy, all of these things. And they cut them. They had to cut them in order to transport them. But here's a picture of them there. You can see the bronze sea. And then you can see those smaller vats on wheels. And, of course, that was even part of the description back in 1 Kings of how to make these. Uh, kind of zooming in there a little bit. Uh, here's another rendition. Now, you say, well, that last, last rendition is different from this one. Yes, because we're not 100% sure. And especially the artists aren't 100% sure. And so they're, in their own mind, trying to recreate it. But, again, you can see that those are pretty big. You don't want to, you know, run over anybody's toe with any of those. Um, there's the priest and their size, and then you have those labors. That, that's the portable water for the ceremonial cleaning and the ceremonial washing of the sacrifices. There's another picture there. It's got some symbolism. All right, so that's, that's what we have there. So that, that is done. All of that is done. And the people have been moved they're on their way to Babylon, but they are moved to Ramah. We'll talk about that. And that's where Jeremiah is. But in the meantime, Nebuchadnezzar appoints one of the Jews as governor. Now, there's not many people there. They're the poorest. They're the most helpless. And yet they have a job to do to raise crops to provide for themselves and then also to give tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. But a governor is appointed. Now, I want you to turn to 2 Kings chapter 25, and let's read verses 22 through 25. That's all the kings is going to say about it. In one sense, it's enough. In one sense, it's enough, but it's very brief compared to what we find in the book of Jeremiah. And there are some things going on some details in Jeremiah that are going to become important next week in the, in, in the, as we go through it. So 2 Kings 25, 22 through 25, and this is going to be our introduction. After we read this, we're going to go back to the book of Jeremiah. It says, verse 22, Now as for the people who were left in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left, he appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, over them. Verse 23, when all the captains of the forces, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah to Mizpah, namely Ishmael, the son of Nathaniah, and Johanan, the son of Kariah, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, and the Netophathite. And I should have had y'all read this. I should have had volunteers to read this. And Jaazaniah. And, and by the way, you know, we do have several women who are pregnant in our church. And this is just. Biblical names that we're just suggesting out there. The son of Macathite. I wouldn't mind being a Macathite. You know, just call him Mac, but Macathite. They and their men. 24. Gedaliah swore to them 
and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Live in the land and serve the king of Babylon, and it will be well with you. But, verse 25, but it came about in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died along with the Jews and the Chaldeans, that's the Babylonians, who were with him at Mizpah. And so we're going to stop there because that's as far as it covers. Well, there's a lot of details. I mean, who was Gedaliah? Why was he killed? Well, we really have to go to Jeremiah to find out that answer. So if you would, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1. And keep your finger there, because we are going to go back a little bit and look at some other passages in Jeremiah. So as far as the events of Jeremiah, we, we know what's happening with the fall of Jerusalem and everybody there. But what happened to Jeremiah? Well, we're going to find out. First of all, we know that Jeremiah was not only in the guardhouse court, but he was in a cistern in the court of the guardhouse. Now, Jeremiah had been thrown in this cistern for prophesying what? The destruction of Jerusalem. How ironic is this? So he, he was thrown into a cistern in Jeremiah 38, and you don't have to turn there. He was secretly pulled out of the cistern, but he stayed in the court of the guardhouse. And in verse 13 of Jeremiah 38, I'll just read it. It says, so they pulled Jeremiah up with the ropes and lifted him out of the cistern. And Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse. Now, how does that figure into the fall of Jerusalem? Well, verse 28 of that same chapter, it says, so Jeremiah stayed in the court of the guardhouse until the day that Jerusalem was captured. So that's what Jeremiah was doing. He was uh, maybe under house arrest or hiding there, but he had been released from the cistern. And of course, I, I probably was more of he was, he was being held there. Well, we come to chapter 39, and there's an interesting situation here. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, must know something of Jeremiah because he tells Nebuzaradan, release him. Not only release him, but follow whatever instructions he gives you. Wow. So his reputation has preceded him. And so I would like you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 39. Jer Jeremiah chapter 39, beginning in verse 11. And it says this. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave orders about Jeremiah through Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, saying, Take him and look after him and do nothing harmful to him, but rather deal with him just as he tells you. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, sent word along with Nebuchadnezzar, 
the Rabsaris, and Nergal, Sarizer, the, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> the Rabmog, and all the leading officers of the king of Babylon. So they're going to release him, and then this is what it says, verse 14. They even sent and took Jeremiah out of the court of the guardhouse and entrusted him to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, to take him home, so he stayed among the people. Well, there's some interesting events here that you have to piece together. It doesn't say it so much. So he's taken out of the courthouse, and he's told to go to Gedaliah. The next thing we know is that Jeremiah is in chains. Why is he in chains? Because the people of Judah are in chains. Why are they in chains? Because they're captive and they're going to be exiled to Babylon. They're taken to uh, Ramah or Ramah. They're taken there. That's the place where they were gathered together to kind of organize it. They're not in Jerusalem, but they're in Ramah and they are in chains. And when we move on in this story, we find out that Jeremiah is also in chains, saying and suggesting that rather than go back to Jerusalem, he was going to go with the people. This prophet was a minister of God to the people, and he was going to be with the people. And as they were in chains, so he was in chains. Now, it's kind of interesting. Um, did, did, did they just think that he was one of them? Did this happen before the instructions to Nebuzaradan? Uh, or was, was it that Jeremiah said, hey, I'm, I'm one of them. Just put me in chains as well. But it's very interesting. So they, they went to uh, Ramah to, to get him. And um, I, I want to just say something about Ramah right now. And we've said it before, but I want to say it again. Ramah is that town that they sent these captives to. But Ramah has a very important history. It has an important history because it's a border town. Is it part of the north kingdom or the southern kingdom? Yes. It all depends on who's the king and how well they did to get it back. So there was, there was this friction and fighting, and we even went over that in uh, First Kings of sometimes the northern kingdom would have possession of it, sometimes the southern kingdom would have possession of it. Well, who has possession of it now? Well, certainly not the northern kingdom, certainly not the southern kingdom, the king of Babylon. This is all under the Babylon empire now. They have it. But what's interesting is, and I mentioned this before, but it just comes up. And you remember in Matthew when Matthew gives a prophecy from Jeremiah that talked about Ramah. Now, in Matthew chapter 2, verse 16 through 18, you remember this. This is, this is where the, you have the massacre of the innocents where the children under the age of two were massacred by Herod. 
Verse 16, then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Now, what's interesting here is this is one of those double fulfillments. The, when, when Jeremiah gave this prophecy, he was giving the prophecy for this event, captivity. Why is Rachel mentioned? Well, that's a good question. Rachel was both the mother of Joseph, who was the father of Ephraim and Manasseh in the northern kingdom, and she was also the mother of Benjamin, which happened to be in the southern kingdom. You see God's wisdom and, and wit and insight? So Ramah was battled as a border town between the north and the south, and Rachel uh, was affiliated with the north and the south. And both the north and the south are weeping. The mothers are weeping because the mothers are in captivity and Judah is going to, to Babylon to be in captivity. And so this, is, this was part of God's warning to Judah. Now, how does that figure with Matthew? Because in Matthew, they're talking about the massacre of the innocents. And so Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, sees it not only fulfilled back then, but sees it ultimately fulfilled in the time of Christ. The idea of this is that now the mothers of Israel are going to cry because of what Herod is doing, trying to kill the Messiah. Of course, we know the Lord Jesus Christ was led by his family, his father, out of harm's way, out of Herod's way. But there's one other thing that we see here. In Jeremiah 31, verse 16, the next verse of that prophecy, it says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. Can I say it one more time? Every time we see God talk about the warning and the punishment and can't even look at his people, he always gives them the promise of hope. That is the promise that they will return. The analogy with the Lord Jesus Christ is, though there was the massacre of innocence, they did not kill the Messiah. And the Messiah would grow to the age of 33 and die on the cross and be raised again and give the hope back to not only Israel, but all men who come to him by faith. So it's such a beautiful thing, and it really does revolve around Ramah, and Ramah is where the captives are, are being held at the moment. And we're going to see that that's where Jeremiah is. So we know now that Nebuchadnezzar 
talked to Nebuzaradan and said, go free, go free Jeremiah. So let's go pick it up now in Jeremiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. So now we're in the text that we're supposed to be. All right. Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 1 says, The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nabuzerad, captain of the bodyguard, had released him from Ramah when he had taken him bound in chains among all the exiles of Jerusalem and Judah who were being exiled to Babylon. So again, maybe the chronology is a little hard for us to understand, but somewhere it went from the courthouse and I believe that when the people went to Ramah, he went with them. And some unsuspecting Babylonian soldier just put him in chains and he was perfectly content. Because he was the prophet to Judah, to the people. And so he was going to stay with the people. Now, we come to verse 2 and 3 which again is very interesting. We did talk about this, but this is going to put this into perspective. Look at verse 2 and 3. Now the captain of the bodyguard had taken Jeremiah and said to him, the Lord your God promised this calamity against this place, and the Lord has brought it on and done just as he promised. Because you people sinned against the Lord, and did not listen to his voice, therefore this thing has happened to you. You know how, I don't know, maybe a, a, a young person is in trouble with their parents, and you, you know, I'll be honest with you, as a parent, you know, maybe we said it very nicely and very short the first time. But about the third time, we're kicking in a, a, uh, a lecture. It's now lecture time. Because apparently, you know, uh, apparently the summarization didn't work. And so now here it is again. My point is, God warned them all along. And now it has happened. And through this pagan guard, I don't believe that he was converted. We don't know how he knew of this. Probably from uh, many of the exiles. Probably they were the ones that saying that. They, Nebuchadnezzar knew of Jeremiah, because he said, let him go. And so here is this, and, and saying it to all people, to Jeremiah, but it was nothing but confirmation to what Jeremiah has been preaching. And it was the Lord saying this, like I, I told you, is exactly what would happen, and now I'm telling you. So, uh, the, the, uh, but again, we still have that hope that he gave to the people. Now, look at verses 4 through 5, because when he gives Jeremiah his freedom, when he gives Jeremiah his freedom, watch what he says. But now, behold, I am freeing you today from the chains which are on your hands. Now, if you would prefer to come with me to Babylon, come along. By the way, he never does. And I will look after you. But if you would prefer not to come with me to Babylon, never mind. Look, the whole land is before you. Go wherever it seems good and right for you to go. 
Well, I bet he was tempted to go back to the people, but I, don't, I, I believe that he was not led there. Verse 5, as Jeremiah was still not going back, he said, go on back then to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, whom the king of Babylon has appointed over the cities of Judah and stay with him among the people or else go anywhere it seems right for you to go. So the captain of the bodyguard gave him a ration and a gift and left him go. So uh, again, this is very interesting. As far as uh, what Jeremiah does, at this point, he does go to Gedaliah. And as we talk about Gedaliah, a little bit of history about him, mostly from his father. Uh, he's now the governor. Uh, it's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar made him a governor. Uh, one of the reasons is, is that he was not going to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar, which at this point was a really good idea. Uh, Zedekiah found out what happened when you rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. But Gedaliah, I believe, was a sympathizer of Jeremiah, just as his father was. So during the time in Jeremiah 26, when they were going to hand Jeremiah over to be put to death, Ahikam came to Jeremiah's rescue so that he was not handed over and put to death. So that was his father. And so it seems to me that he could be a righteous man. Uh, seems to me that he's an honest man, wise man. And of course, uh, if he's a sympathizer with Jeremiah, the prophet, he's a sympathizer with Yahweh. So we come to verse 6 then. In verse 6 then, it says, Then Jeremiah went to Mizpah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, and stayed with him among the people who were left in the land. So he didn't abandon the people. He's still with the people. And that's the choice he had to make. Should I, should I go in exile or not? Well, he wouldn't have had to because, number one, Daniel was there in Babylon, and so was Ezekiel. So there was a prophet there. So he's going to stay with his people and for good reason, as we'll find out eventually. So just quickly here, uh, I do have a map, and the map is of Ramah. You probably can't see that, so you, you, you can see the bubble. That is Ramah. Um, and then just north of that is Mizpah. And then south of that is Jerusalem. So you can see where they traveled to Ramah. That's where they held them. That's where they were in captivity. And then they moved them to Babylon. Mizpah was where Gedaliah was. That's probably where he was placed. That probably at this point was going to be the administration place, the capital, if you will, of Jerusalem. Because why? Because Jerusalem is in rubbles. Because it's been burned. It's been destroyed. There are a few people living there trying to eke out a living, but they have Gedaliah in Mizpah. And so, instead of going to Jerusalem... Jeremiah goes from Ramah to Mizpah, where there are other people. So there are people that are going to be left there. And then we're going to find out that there still are other people around the area. Not everybody in the area has been taken captive. And so they're going to start congregating. And they need a governor. 
and it appears that he's a wise governor, good man, and he was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar. So there you have it. Now, we're going to see a change now. So this is, this is some good news after some bad news, and now we're going to see some of the people come, which sounds like good news, but there's going to be some bad news. We're going to see that especially these military forces return. And there's going to be a conflict. They left. They ran away because they were defeated by the king of Babylon. They ran away and did not surrender. Do they want to surrender now? In order to get along and live in Mizpah and, and get along under the governorship of Gedaliah, they have to submit to the king of Babylon, and everything will go well with them. What do you think? All right, so Jeremiah chapter 40, verse 7. It says, Now all the commanders of the forces that were in the field, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, over the land, and that he had put him in charge of the men, women, and children, those of the poorest of the land who had not been exiled to Babylon. So they hear it and they're coming. And Gedaliah at this point is going to be a good facilitator. He's going to be a good administrator. He probably knows that on their mind, they're thinking, how is this going to work? And Gedaliah is going to tell them how it's going to work. Look, if you would, at verse 8. It says, so they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, along with Ishmael, the son of Nephaniah, and Johanan, and Jonathan, the sons of Korea, and Sariah, the son of Tanhumeth, and the sons of Ephi, the Neophathite, and Jezaniah, the son of Machathite both they and their men. Now, I'm not going to go into each of their names and their history, and some of them, there's hardly anything written about them, but one of them is going to become very important, and that's going to become Ishmael. Ishmael is going to be very important, and what we're going to find out is that Ishmael is from the line of David. Very interesting. Well, these captains return uh, from hiding in the hills, and they came to speak to the governor to find out what his intentions were. And I just have a little excerpt here about Ishmael, and it's going to start to spiral down here pretty soon. Two of the leaders listed were worthy of special notice because of subsequent events. We're going to read about them again. The one listed first was Ishmael, son of Nethaniah. He was from the royal line of David, and had served as one of King Zedekiah's officers. The second was Johanan, who was one of two sons of Korea. Nothing else is known about Johanan's background, but he will become a key player in the very near future. Now, what I really appreciate about Gedaliah is look, look what he says here. Look at his administration ability. Look at his wanting to have peace. And he says this, Then Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, swore to them and to their men, saying, Do not be afraid of serving the Chaldeans. 
So they weren't asked to go to Babylon, but there were Chaldeans there. It was under the occupation of Babylon. That's what the Chaldeans are. Stay in the land and serve the king of Babylon that it may go well with you. And so, you know, he's, he's an honest guy. And he's, he's saying, look, I know your concerns, but stay here. It will be for your protection. In verse 10, we find something else. He said, now as for me, behold, I am going to stay at Mizpah to stand for you before the Chaldeans who come to us. But as for you, gather in wine and summer fruit and oil and put them in your storage vessels and live in your cities that you have taken over. Well, this sounds like a fair deal. So it's interesting, he, he talks about the, the wine, which is the produce of, gra of grapes. Um, and, and of course, you see a lot of that. And there were uh, a lot of places over in Israel that we observed that were wine presses. Some of them were very natural wine presses of a hole that was dug in a rock. And of course, they're still there today. And one of them was in Nazareth. So... Uh, it was, that was kind of interesting when we were at the Nazareth village. Uh, I'll be honest with you. So we're at Nazareth village, which is a replica. It's in Nazareth, but it's a replica of, you know, the village of Jesus. And they, they made a synagogue and they, they made some other places and they, they raise, they raise cattle. And you're thinking, yeah, you know, I don't know. But when they showed us that hole where they pressed the wine with their feet and then said, very well, could have been one of the wine presses that were used at the time of Jesus. It clicked. Okay, so they're doing replicas here, but this place is the place where Jesus was raised in Nazareth. Anyway, and, uh, and, and of course, you know that when they do press the grapes and make wine, they do it barefooted. Uh, number one is so that they don't crack the seeds and make the wine bitter. And the other one is, is it just gives more additive. <laughs> All right. So he, this is what he's explaining to them. Uh, you know, hey, have a life of peace, even though there has been destruction. And, and again, we see Nebuchadnezzar, and I suppose this is a... a uh, uh, an attribute of grace, which it could be from him, but it primarily is from God. So he is God's instrument at this point to take care of all these other nations, including his own people. But there is a, 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 a message of grace. And by the way, what about those exiles that are going to go to Babylon? Well, they're not going to be hurting because they're going to get to, uh, you know, work on their own fields. They're going to get to you know, become wealthy. They're going to be able to have houses there. In fact, that's what Jeremiah told them to do. So that when they were released, they would have, you know, plenty of wealth to go. The problem was they enjoyed it so well that when they were released, many did not go. Many did not go back to Jerusalem. Well, we, we find out then that the people come. So look at verse 11 and 12. It says, Likewise, all the Jews who were in Moab and among the sons of Ammon and in Edom 
and who were in all the other countries heard that the king of Babylon had left a remnant for Judah and that he appointed over them Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. Then all the Jews returned from all the places to which they had been driven away and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and gathered in wine and summer fruit in great abundance. So there's not a ton of people, but there are people and it's more and more and it's starting to work. And so there's this little bit of blessing here. Well, that's one turn and now there's going to be another turn and it is going to involve these captains. Now, some of the captains I think were on board like Johanan. Some of them were not like Ishmael. And as we learned from reading chapter 25, verses 22 through 25, there from 2 Kings, we know what was going to happen between Ishmael and Gedaliah. All right, so now in verse 13, Gedaliah is going to be warned of an assassination. Johanan is going to warn him that Ishmael was told by the king of Ammon to assassinate Gedaliah. Well, let's pick it up. Verse 13. It says, Now Johanan, the son of Kareah, and all the commanders of the forces that were in the field came to Gedaliah at Mizpah. Now, if, where it says all the other commanders and captains, this means that a, a bunch of them were on the same page. But then in verse 14, and he said to him, Are you well aware that Baalis, the king of the sons of Ammon, has sent Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, to take your life. But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, did not believe them. You, you almost get the idea that Gedaliah is not only an honest guy, but maybe a naive guy. There's a, there's a point where naivety is good, or to be naive when it comes to evil. But sometimes naivety is not good, and he does not believe him. So in verse 15, he says, Then Johanan the son of Korea spoke secretly to Gedaliah and Mizpah, saying, Let me go and kill Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and not a man will know. Why should he take your life? so that all the Jews who are gathered to you would be scattered and the remnant of Judah would perish. Verse 16, But Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, said to Johanan, the son of Korea, Do not do this thing, for you are telling a lie about Ishmael. Well, as we look at this, it's kind of an interesting thing here because you know, it's, it is a time of distrust, and at least that should have been in the mind of Gedaliah. And it should have been, as we've seen through the book of uh, Kings, that even, even if it's not necessarily from a truthful source, you're supposed to at least consider it, just to find out, okay? And that's what Gedaliah should have done, and, and he's going to pay the price for not doing it. Now, it is interesting, quickly... Um, by the way, there's a picture of Ramah. That's from Nebi Samuel, which is the place uh, uh, 
where Samuel is buried. Um, and you can look at the hill. It's, Ramah is called the Heights. And again, this was the border between the north and the south. Uh, there's Nebi Samuel. The Crusaders uh, came to that spot and they, they built a castle. Um, but here's, here's a picture of Gedaliah, or at least an inscription that they found of him. And they found this in Lachish in doing archaeology. They found this coin um, that said property of Gedaliah who was over the house. So uh, it, it could be this Gedaliah, um, but anyway, it, it gives, it's quite possibly. Um, also, they, they uncovered a seal of King Baalis and then also a bronze bottle uh, which bears the inscription, the king of the sons of Ammon. So this could all be things that are connected at the time of Jeremiah. Again, let me say it again. When we see archaeology, we've already been confirmed, we already are confirmed that the Bible is God's inspired word. We don't need archaeology to prove it. But when it does confirm it, we say, yeah, you see that? And I think it's to the skeptics primarily. But there are other religions that attempt to have archaeology to back up their beginning and nothing, nothing is found. Nothing is found. So this really does uh, confirm what we already know, that the Bible is God's word and it's absolutely true. These events are true. And if we could get underneath all of the layers of Jerusalem, we would find, we would find these, uh, these these things that are spoken of in the book of First Kings. Well, perhaps Gedaliah wisely denied the request to have Johanan kill him, but he should have taken precautions because we're going to find out now that that's exactly what happens. Ishmael does come after him and he does kill Gedaliah. And it's such a shame. Things were going forward. And not only that, but Ishmael is from the line of David. And you would just not think that someone from the line of David would kill someone who was over God's people, the people of Judah. And yet that's what we're going to find out. Now we're into chapter 41 of Jeremiah. And it says, in the seventh month, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishamah, of the royal family, there it is, and one of the chief officers of the king, would have been Zedekiah, along with 10 men came to Mizpah to Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, while they were eating bread together there in Mizpah, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the 10 men who were with him arose and struck down Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, with the sword, and put to death the one whom the king of Babylon had appointed over the land. Now let me just say, that's going to present some problem. Not only for the people of Judah, but now you have killed an appointed official by King Nebuchadnezzar, who basically owns everything now. The Babylonian Empire has total domination over that entire area. 
Also, verse 3, Ishmael also struck down all the Jews who were with him. That is with Gedaliah at Mizpah. And here we go, the Chaldeans who were found there and the men of war. Okay, yeah, this is big. This is big. And it's, it's, we're wondering why someone of the royal family would do this. I suspect, his motives are not given. I suspect that one reason is he doesn't want to give in to the king of Babylon. He was, in fact, fighting until he ran away and hid. He was fighting the king. But he's now in cahoots with the royalty there in Ammon. And who knows what they're saying? Perhaps they're saying the same thing. Hey, we're not going to submit, really. You know, even though, even though um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is, is the king over all of us, we're not going to submit. And so this is what I'd like you to do. Go kill Gedaliah. Bring it into confusion. Take the people. Just, you know, maybe if you take the remnant out of there, that'll be the end of the hopes of Nebuchadnezzar ruling there in Judea. Well, we find out that he went ahead and did it. He killed the men of war. Uh, it even says that in uh, chapter 25, verse 25 of 2 Kings. That's the book that we're studying. But it came about the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Elishama of the royal family, came with ten men and struck Gedaliah down so that he died with the Jews and the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. Uh, it is interesting, but they, they do have a, a, a fast and maybe a feast today of Gedaliah, just as they have the, the feast there towards in remembrance of Esther, there's a feast and a fast of Gedaliah. It says the Jews still keep the fast of Gedaliah in the seventh month. Um, September, October on the third day of the month, the first and second days being the new year. So th they, they still are recognizing this. So he was honored, but Ishmael is not. And now with just a little bit of time, we're not going to find out the end of Ishmael this week, but we are going to see some events happen. So we're in chapter 41 of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 41, and let's move now from verses 4 through 10, and I'll just go ahead and read the whole thing. Now, it happened on the next day after the killing of Gedaliah, when no one knew about it, that 80 men came from Shechem, from Shiloh, and from Samaria, with their beards shaved off, and their clothes torn, and their bodies gashed, having grain offerings and incense in their hands to bring to the house of the Lord. Let me just stop there. Now, who were these individuals? Well, they had come there to worship, so they were either Jews or proselytes. The fact that they shaved their beards uh, uh, and tore their clothes has to do with bereavement. The fact that they gashed their bodies, that's pagan. So they were influenced by pagan influences. So they had gashes all over the bodies. But they did have grain offerings and incense 
to bring to the house of the Lord. So these aren't warriors to fight anyone, but these are worshipers that are still coming. They were probably going to go to Jerusalem, where even though the temple was destroyed, they probably just cleaned up a little bit of it so that people would come and would worship there. Verse 6, Then Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, went out from Mizpah to meet them, weeping as he went. And as he met them, he said to them, Come to get Eliah, the son of Ahikam. Yet it turned out that as soon as they came inside the city, Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, and the men that were with him, slaughtered them and cast them into the cistern. But ten men who were found among them said to Ishmael, Do not put us to death, for we have stores of wheat and barley, oil and honey hidden in the field. So he refrained and did not put them to death along with their companions. So we got to stop there. So this was treachery. What an evil man he was. What a liar he was. And does this act like an act of grace? No, he's greedy. He wants the spoils, so he spares their life. Now look at verse 9. Now as for the cistern where Ishmael had cast all the corpses of the men whom he had struck down because of Gedaliah, it was the one that King Asa had made on account of Baasha, king of Israel. Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, filled it with the slain. Two thoughts here. Number one, if there's any water at all in the cistern, and there usually are because they're very wide and they do catch the rainwater, and then also, too, they are sometimes filled up by a water uh, um, trough or, or irrigation uh, into it. So, th so these cisterns uh, help them make it through the, the, uh, the, the dry seasons, the summer. Well, now you put dead bodies in there. They've defiled the water. It's done. It's done. He, he's taking Judah and the remnant out of there. There's no sense... There's no sense staying there at Mizpah or anywhere else. And then the second thing is, why does Jeremiah enter Asa and Baasha? Now, we saw them in the book of Kings. Why does he mention them? Well, he's a historian, for one thing, because it's true. And because, in particular, Asa and Baasha were fighting over Ramah. In fact, Baasha had the possession of it until an enemy was coming to attack him. He stopped, he left, and then Asa, he went ahead and took over. And then he also, it says that he built a cistern. And this particular cistern is the one that he built. So, it's, you know, there's nothing wasted in scripture. If it's in there, it's in there for a reason. You just sometimes have to search it out. And then verse 10, and this is where we're going to stop. Then Ishmael took captive all the remnant of the people who were in Mitzvah. And kings, the king's daughters and all the people who were left in Mitzvah, whom Nebuzaradan, the captain of the bodyguard, had put under charge of Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam. Thus Ishmael, the son of 
Nethaniah took them captive and proceeded to cross over to the sons of Ammon. This is just absolutely terrible. So now he's not just taking captives captive. He's taking the people of God, the people of Judah captive. And he's going to give them to another king, uh, to the sons of Ammon. Well, we're going to stop there because these events are important. When we get back to 2 Kings, it, the next verse is going to talk about, well, they're going to try to travel to Egypt. What? How did that come about? That's what we are learning. That is what we are learning, how they are going to come about. For an application this evening, I want to just talk about loyalty and faithfulness. First of all, you know, we talk about the faithfulness of God. Um, the scriptures talk about the faithfulness of God. It's an attribute. It's one that he will not go back on his promises. And when he promised in Jeremiah chapter 31, the new covenant, that he would bring back his people, that is going to happen. He promised to bring them back to Jerusalem. That happened. But he's promising in the millennial kingdom to bring back his people Israel at the second coming, ushering in the millennial kingdom. It is kind of sad when we find out that some people do not believe that God has a future plan with Israel. How could he not? He's faithful. The only reason that we're faithful is because he's faithful. And by the way, as you know, faithfulness is one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. And this is what the Holy Spirit is attempting to do in us. And, and how would it apply? Well, it would apply to us as faithful, first of all, in just being faithful and not being unfaithful in sinning but being faithful to the Lord mostly and faithful in the things and the endeavors that we do for the Lord. We need to be faithful in that. Now, as we're talking about faithfulness, let's take a look at two object lessons. Let's look at Jeremiah first. You know, when Nebuzaradan was told to go get Jeremiah, first he goes to the courthouse to get him, or the court there of the guardhouse, and he ends up having to go to Ramah because Jeremiah wasn't there. Jeremiah was with the people and he was in chains. If that's where they're going, that's where he's going. And we're going to say something else about this when the people go to Egypt, which they're not supposed to. He gives them a prophecy and tells them they're not supposed to, but they go anyway. We'll see Jeremiah's faithfulness as well. So that's just interesting. So, you know, I guess... From a pastor's point of view, an elder's point of view, from anyone who is involved in ministry, that's what we're here for. We're here to minister to the people. We're to be faithful in ministering to the people. Now, number one, I believe that faithfulness is carried out when we're faithfully teaching the word of God. I mean, it's not our own ideas uh, per se. I mean, it's you know, it's, it's, it's not what we read in, in, you know, some of these networks and how to be a CEO and how to raise a big company. That's not what we're about. We're here to minister to them spiritually the word of God, and we need to be faithful to that. And then the next object lesson was Gedaliah. I mean, he was in a terrible predicament, but if you do remember, Jeremiah was saying, submit, surrender, to Nebuchadnezzar. 
The end is here. Those who didn't and don't, he said, will die. And they did. Those who surrender will be spared. And many had surrendered before the fall of Jerusalem and were spared. And now anyone who was left that was able to go, that wasn't poor, that could contribute, they, they were going to get to go too. And he, he was going along with that. That was the Lord's will. Now these, these captains, I understand that they're still mad. I understand that they don't want to submit to the king of Babylon. I get that. But at the same time, you're defeated. Hello. And you know what? As long as you're still going to be fighting them, they're going to fight you and kill you. But here's an opportunity for peace. If you surrender, if you, and you don't even have to go to Babylon. You can go back to, the, the, go back to your hiding place where you were and start a city there. And, and you can work the fruit and work the land. And it's interesting, most of them were on board with that, but not Ishmael. But Gedaliah was very loyal. He said, I'm going to go. He said, if you do this, you, you will survive. You will be safe. And then he says, and I'm going to go stand in the way of the Chaldeans and say, hey, look, they have come and they have come in peace. And this is what's going to happen. And this is what they're going to do. And you said they were going to be fine. So he's a loyal man. And Ishmael was not a loyal man and killed him. And that's sad. And we, we see that. We see that even in our day and age. People who are on the side of right are the ones that get martyred many, many times. But it doesn't matter for us as believers. It doesn't matter what persecution we get. We must be faithful and loyal and do what's right and minister no matter what. That's God's plan. Now, we see God's plan in the world. And it is his plan. If we believe in the Bible that God is sovereign... This is sovereignty at work. But beyond that, beyond what he's doing and the chess pieces to bring about future fulfillment of prophecy, there's something very important going on that's always been going on, and that's God's plan of redemption to share the gospel, to bring them to Christ. And then once we bring them to Christ, to faithfully minister to them. So we see loyalty from this section here, even though we had to go to Jeremiah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and close. Father, thank you for this. Lord, it, it is a terrible thing to see what happened to Israel, but let it be a warning to us that we must faithfully and loyally serve you out of a heart of love. And not only you, Lord, but in serving you to serve others. If you think of a pastor, if you think of elders, if you think of leaders in the spiritual realm, they are servants. In fact, Paul and the writers of the New Testament called themselves the bond servants or the bond slaves of Jesus Christ. So, Father, that's a good reminder that we are here to serve and serve the people spiritually and lift them up spiritually. So, Father, help us to do that. But bring us back again as we continue on with this uh, the fall of Jerusalem and the very end. And we'll thank you, Father, for your grace, your mercy, and your faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.